Chapter Ten of Six Women in the Invasion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recording are in public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter Ten. Herbubembej had hardly been appointed commandant in Moni when the enemy took a new step in. The organization of the country. From that moment, two or three spectacled scribes gathered together in a large schoolroom, labeled bureau, both in French and German, and busied themselves with endless scribblings. They drew up lists of the male inhabitants of the village. Two to once a month had to be present when their names were called over. They put in writing all divers tasks required for the villagers. They kept an account of an allowance of food, sometimes granted to the civilians. They distributed passports and their superintendent requisitions. From the outset, Bubenbid seemed eager to show he was hard to please. The rural constable was ordered. To announce that gold was to be brought to the bureau, where the owners would be given banknote in its stead, according to the simplest exchange, one hundred marks for one hundred twenty flungs. Pieces of gold are not readily drawn out the stockings, yet a few of them had to come forth. I am afraid that since then. The invaders have managed to empty them, but at that time they were only at the hill. By mere chance, Moni had as yet paid no more than the contributions of war which had been levied on the whole country soon after the invasion. Other villages less fortunate than ours had been overburdened with taxes upon the most. Ridiculous pretences. A poor hamlet, Kuchi Leebs, was fined six times during space of a few months. First came the general contribution, then a fine of half a million francs was imposed upon the canton of Cisond, to which Kuchi belonged, and every village had to pay its share. It so happened that in September some soldiers coming back from Rome drove their cart through Cisons, and as their cart were loaded with bottles of wine, they drank all the way and threw empty bottles behind them. Then came motor cars, which punctured their tires on the broken glass. Great scandal. The civilians were accused of having put a trap for honest Prussian views. Their protestations availed nothing. The canton was condemned to a fine. The canton must pay, and Gugu paid like the other communes. When all houses were searched after the great proclamation of November, an old fling lock. Kept in memory of an ancestor, was discovered in Gucci, at an old maiden lady's. It never struck the owner that 
she should have brought into the mayor's house, or hidden it. And suppose the old maiden lady had shuddered, the aged gummed. Is it enough to make you shudder when you think of the danger of the German army might have thus incurred? As quick as could be, a few thousand flungs were levied on the village, which dared be subversive enough to conceal an old maid and an old gun. Even then, the troubles of the poor village did not come to an end. A French aviator dropped a bomb on the station, and the bomb disturbed a few German carriages. The military authority knitted its brows. Why, this Gucci is talk of again? Let it have a good fine, and it will keep quiet. For what reason had this village to bleed itself, and borrow from the town in order to pay the invader twice more? I do not know, but so it was. Morny's turn was coming. One night, a band of a farm there, the hussar, were quartered, took fire, and was soon ablaze with straw. It contained the whole village, ran to quench the conflagration. We stood nearby, just long enough to see the peasant put the fire out with all speed. While the soldier folded their arms, and were pleased to be amused, von Duberhausen and Bubenbich looked on at the spectacle. Then von Duberhausen thought proper to raid the mayor sharply. There are not people enough. Go and fetch civilians. Be quick. All the able-bodied men of the village were summoned. And they sweated while the hussar made sport of them. The cassette descendant, which took the place of the journal de guerre to the very best advantage, does not relate such accident in this wise, but I can only narrate what my eyes have seen. Ubenbich rubbed his hand; he had found an opportunity to show his zeal. With all speed, he sent a report to the staff, upon which he depended, stating that civilians had set the barn on fire out of spite. He forgot to add that a few hours before the disaster, the hussar had burned the dirty, lousy mattresses in the neighbourhood of the said barn, where besides soldier. Had been seen smoking many a time with perfect serenity. So stout gentlemen in a full uniform came to Morny, and with reproachful looks stalked majestically through the street. A chance was given us to atone for the misdeed if, within twenty-four hours, information was lodged against the civilian who had set fire to the barn. The village might be forgiven. Should the contrary happen, a severe penalty would be immediately enforced. No denunciation, and for good reasons, the people were convinced that the soldiers had kindled the straw on the purpose. 
the military authority grieved to the heart, imprisoned, without further delay, the mayor and six notable persons. Then they deliberated upon the matter, and always regretfully imposed a fine of sixteen thousand francs on the village. They ordered the other prisoner to be set at liberty after three days, but kept the mayor under lock and key for two weeks. Ill-fed and worse, Lord, Monsieur Lonet and another municipal councillor went the round of the village and did their best to get the sum required. They managed to collect twelve thousand francs and the Germans had to be content with that for the present. They knew only too well that they would catch us again. Besides, other cares worry us. In February 1915, our houses were again searched from top to bottom. It was proclaimed that the inhabitant should declare the quantity of corn, flour and vegetable they had in store, so that the provision might be requisitioned according to the need of the German army, and mysterious sacks, closed basket, thirty borrows were seen in morning. There was an air of haste, men passed close to the walls, went along out of the way part, up to the attics, down into halls. When the day of Perquisitioned came, the German believed their own eyes rather than the decoration of the native. There were tears and gnashing of teeth. Treasure were discovered: potatoes and corn dug up. The Germans laid hold of everything, and they even despoiled the very poor of their slender provisions. For instance, our neighborhoods. The Blanchers, a very young couple, whose joint ages were less than forty years, who had only an empty purse and about thirty kilo of potatoes, were robbed to the very last shred. That they may not lose a single potato, they carefully raid Madame Tuguet's shed all round, and seized forty, though the poor woman has four children who do not live upon nothing. We, in our house, tired of war, hid nothing at all. We had prepared for a fortnight for sacks of weed, which we had bought from a farmer, who has mysteriously sold his secret hoard. Where I beg for you, could you conceal four sacks of weed in an honest house? especially when you know from sad experience that the prequisitioners performed their office conscientiously. At Anoa they had water a cellar to make sure that the ground had not been newly dug. At Vaux they had no left twenty centimetres of a certain garden unexplored. After a long debate we decided to leave things as they were, but if peace returns and I am able to build a house, it shall have hiding places, wells, tanks, deep dungeons, hollow walls shall open by means of a secret springs, and two, three, 
five sellers shall be array one beneath the other, which, in case of a need, shall swallow up whole herds. To say nothing of a vast reserve of groceries. Meanwhile, our goods being full in sight, Ubenbech, who out of politeness gave himself the trouble to search our house, visiting every cupboard and poking his nose everywhere, had been at no pains to discover them. He declared he was compelled to requisition the corn. With a smile, he left us our potatoes. Colette was indignant. Why, this fellow does not take our potatoes, because he wants to be amiable, and our neighbourhood have been despoiled of everything. It is a shame. We must share with the others, and we did. A basket to the right, a basket to the left, a basket over the way. Our provision well nigh dwindled to nothing. After that, we were in the same state as our neighbours. It is beyond doubt that some people have managed to save many things, and of course the German has surmised as much. Two or three days after the first perquisitions, they dropped in unawares and made very profitable visit. Madame Tugger. For instance, has succeeded in hiding a sack of wheat, and the soldier will hide it out of the way, a loaf to celebrate her good fortune. The loaf, yellow and round, was displayed on the table, while on the ground lay the sack, safe from the rag. And little Lucien, a slender girl of twelve, as reasonable as a woman. Was grinding corn in a coffee mill. Near at hand, a ditch was already full of flour. After a second operation of the same kind, it would be fit for kneading. The mother was out. The baby girl Claire was busy sucking her thumb, with her admiring gaze on her sister. The last-born was asleep in his cradle. Heavy steps broke silence. Big shadows appear on the door sill. The Prussians, the coffee mill stopped short. Ah ah! The non-commissioned officer said, "You have corned. You stole it." No, sir. It is just a little bit I have cleaned with Mama. You stole it," replied the soldier. Don't you know that everything belongs to the Germans? If you have corned, you must have stolen it. The perquisitioners carried away in triumph the small sack, the beautiful golden loaf, and even a dishful of half-ground flour. On coming back, Madame Tugger found Lucien in tears, Claire weeping in imitation of her sister, and Jacques, ever ready to make an abroad, screaming at the top of his voice. After this fatal visit, we had still more holes to take in our belt. Nothing was ever left on our table. The dishes, few in number, were immediately divided into seven parts, and every one thought, when rising from table, I could begin again with pleasure.
The question of light was another plug of our life. The last drop of petroleum, the last traces of linseed oil, had been converted into smoke a long time before. We were obliged to use horse oil like our neighbors. Horse oil, oh, forever, and even nauseated the membranes. Always have congealed, browned, sticky, stinky. It made its bold manipulator sick for an hour. This oil was manufactured by a man in the village. Then he could procure a dead horse, not too lean. And as we could not get as much as we had wished, we had to sparing. The villagers simply pour it into an old sardine box, and the wig, leaning against the metal beam, smoked. Charred, smelled nasty, and gave us little light as possible. In spite of our effort, this half-liquid matter, energetically refused to ascend in the lamp, and we were forced to let it burn openly, in a receptacle of some kind or other, and to support it by an ingenious system of pins. In fact. It was so ingenious that the wig was swamped in the oil every moment, and we were left groping about the dark, whose air was infected with a smell of burnt flesh, doleful evening, still more doleful night. We no longer slept as we had slept before. The houses serenaded, in order to give a larger apartment to Bubenbed. Genevieve and I had to be satisfied with a small room, which is on the level with the yard and icy cold in winter. A simple rush mat covered the pavement. The stove was small, the fuel rare, our blanket thinned. The hussars had requisitioned two others. We went to bed chilling with cold. Our hot water bottle alone gave us a little life. As to sleep, one does not sleep much in invented country. Every moment, some unwanted noise makes you start, and then lumbling of the cannon disturbs you, and the thought of the absent sends a thrill through your heart, and then you ask yourself, how long, how long? In February nineteen fifteen, the end seemed to have been postponed. Our soldiers will come back next spring," said the peasants, resigned to fate. We all waited for their return, and long were the night. I know people who went to bed at five o'clock, without dinner, for good reasons, and got up at about eight o'clock. How many pangs and cares that wander in the darkness! Genevieve and I dreaded the change of evening, and it was often midnight before we made up our mind to blow out the light. Many a nightmare startled us, keeping us wide awake for the rest of the night. Who shall describe the horror of the dreams dreamed during the war, the dreams of the conquered? Every night brought its own vision.
but two came back with a most distressing obstinacy. A landscape covered with snow, a great deal of snow, round top mountains. The wind chasing the branches of the fir trees. It looked like the verset. Why, Posy, are you in the verset? How can the wind make such a noise through the branches? I see but one fir tree black against the gloomy sky, and I hear it thunder. Yet the thunder never rolls in winter. I see a crow, whirring round and round before it alight. There's nothing under the fir trees, but I know something must be there. Here it is. It is black. It is long. The crow hovers. I do not stir. My feet are sunk in the snow. Yet I come nearer, or rather, the thing is approaching. Yet it is exactly what I thought. It is a dead body. Its uniform is untouched. Its face, the eye sockets are empty. Who is it? Who is it? The crow has torn out his eyes. Yes, we buried the scout in Chervney. Who is it? Oh God, he that is nearest to me in the world. Posy, I tree with terror and awoke panting. The wind moaned through the trees of the garden, and from time to time, see, as if to alarm its fragging interrogator, the cannon to roar instead of itself. It was impossible to try and sleep again, but we also used to dream wide awake. The invaded country, thousands and thousands of people are thus thinking in the dark. Their hands are clasped in prayer. Or clinch, or convulsively pressed, or relax out of utter weariness. It is the hour when the absent are present. What family has not one or several numbers at the front? And for many months, an abyss has grown between us, which cannot be crossed. But at night they come back. In the dark, we see the dear faces smile. We watch their familiar gesture. We hear their familiar voices. Shall we be allowed to see them again here below? Where are they? Where are the strong arms that embrace me when I murmur, "Posy, I am cold." Where are the beloved ones? The mother are at prayers. The mother are crying. Sisters, wives, all that I love cheek with horror. At the sight that passed before their eyes, where are the beloved ones? They have been dead perhaps these last six months. Their bodies may be rotting among the barbed wire. They may have been blown to pieces by an explosion, or swollen by asphyxiating gas, or burned in the flames, or crushed beneath earthworks, or riddled by grapeshot, or torn by balls. Their bodies, which have been cherished, cared for, kissed, and we go on hoping them, thinking them alive, safe, and sound. When shall we know whether they are dead or alive, whether strong and healthy, 
a moaning upon her bed in hospital. Our souls, our eager heart, are longing for delivery, and the day it comes will perhaps bring with its the bitterest sorrows. Most families will have to mourn a dead one. The whole country will be sung in grief. Rachel, weeping for her children, and refusing to be comforted, we shall be despoiled and stripped of everything. We leave, but for the hope of meeting again our loved ones, and how many will never come back, and while they die, receive their murderers. They sleep under our roofs, eat the fruit of our labor, and range over us. The want of news, the presence of the German, such were the sad things of our life. Oh, they were present, always present. It was impossible to forget them, even for one moment. They pursued us in our dreams. They haunted us. How often I have found myself stretched on a road, on an icy cold road in a barren country. And the men came galloping up with loud shouting, and I could not move. The cavalcade was going to crush me. The hussar, the hussars! Once more, I set up a cry. I woke up. Steps, voices resounded in the street. The officer's evening party was at an end. The key fumbled at the lock. Ubembech was coming back. It was one o'clock. Or two or three, I heard the dogs patter along the yard. They wanted to identify the visitor. The cannon rumbled with a sluggish sound. The hours were slow, slow. At breakfast, Antonia often said charitably, "Just mind what I say, mother. One morning you will see the whole of us come up, sinking, dancing, laughing." Perfectly fit for Belém. To be sure, one would go mad for less. Our life was duller than anyone's. Fancy six women shut up in a house, having nothing particular to do, always engrossed by the same tiring thought. Lesser is an evil very difficult to bear in invaded territory. You wait. You do nothing else. You seem to be in a condition that cannot go on for long. Works, to what purpose? For whose sake and what work to do? Save the men whom the Germans have requisitioned, and who, of course, tie themselves as little as possible. Every one drags out his days. The baker, the teachers, the cobbler. Are the only persons of the village really busy with them their occupations, as we had but our needles to fill up our free hours. Very soon we have done out old clothes, set them to right, and distributed them among the poor. There was a family of seven children whose mother has just died, and whose clothes we kept in decent condition, but it was not enough. We too yawned our life away. Ten times a day we cried aloud for the means of escape, escape to live again an active life, to see people who are not Germans, to know what is going on, to live. 
A gleam of hope came. It was in the month of March. The garden was already strewn with snowdrops, primroses, and crocuses. Capacity was harder to bear than ever. One day, the rural constable made an announcement. He appeared to our eyes, crowded with a golden nimbus, and more dazzling than an archangel. His voice was sweeter than honey. He said, "The person who wanted to leave the invaded territory to go into other part of France may have their names put down at the town hall, with the exception of the men from fourteen to sixty. This caused so great an emotion among us that we well nigh quitted this life suddenly and simultaneously. We kept on the lookout of Bubembej." When he should come home to demand further particulars, this Bubembej did not please us at all. He is agreed that no Prussian could have pleased us, but on the dislike we entertained to the whole race was grafted a personal aversion to him. He was dark-haired, middle-sized, short-legged, with a solid torso, topped by a big naked head. He had a regular feature, deceitful eyes, and looked something of a rake. He was said to be nearly related to a general, and he thought himself irresistible. How dissipated he looks! He said the first time we saw him, and one of his soldiers whispered in Madame Lanoue's ear, "Lieutenant, not bad, but many women, many women. That's not good. In fact." Bubembej led a most dissolute life. He soon brought confession upon Mourny, and his stay there was the commencement of a debauch that caused scandal throughout the region. With us, he was at first all smiles, but our look soon chilled him, and he was content with a short bow when he happened to meet one of us, which was rare. For we carefully avoided him. At least, we said, he is not too dull-witted. He understands that we look sour at the Germans, and he does not want to have us punished for it. We were candid. Bubembej was not rude and unmanly like von Behausen, and therefore his methods were different. All the same, he bore us a grudge. For having been insensible to his charms, only he looked upon revenge as a cold ditch. But he swore that we should pay dearly for the scorn of the Germans, and he waited his opportunity. He was sure to seize it, even if it limped with a lame foot. For the pleasant, he encouraged us to go and give. Most comforting particulars about the journey, which would be an easy one. The train would take thousands of people to Switzerland, and within four or five days, at the farthest, we should be in Paris. Would we go indeed, rather than stay behind? We would have made a journey in a cattle truck, upon our head, or on our knees. Five days to go to Paris. What is that? Even were we to spend them sleepless, even were we to starve, 
and be squeezed tight like a sardine in a tin box. Who will go? I inquired. There were some who held back. I stay here, declared Madame Verlaine. Up to now, the house has not been plundered. I want to keep it as it is. I stay here, said Colette in her turn. Do you think I will fly before the plunging again? Besides, I have nothing to do in Paris. I will give Mother company. I saw the French go away. I want to see them come back. Then Yvonne decided, "I will stay too." Shall I go and study music in Paris when the Prussians are still here? Never. Since Mother and Colette remain, I stay with them. After all, the French can't be longing coming back. Mother and daughter insisted. Besides, they added, "Living will be easier when you are away." If Madame Lenoir manages to give us one or two eggs or a bottle of milk, this windfall will not have to be divided into seven parts. For us, all that is left for our potatoes. For us, the provisions for macaroni that is hidden in the canopy of the bed of our Prussian. After a long discussion, the thing was settled. We fell into one another's arms. Every one of us shed a flood of tears, and with fervent hate we made preparations for our departure. At the idea that we was going to see his mother again, Pierrot had turned as white as a sheet, and then had begun screaming at the top of his voice, "Mother, mother, mother!" He jumped. He danced. We had to tell him that if he were so tiresome, we should be obliged to leave him in mourning, and he became as quiet as a lamb. Our bags were soon packed, and with thrilling heart we awaited our departure. The announcement of the journey did not arouse the enthusiasm which the German had expected. Bubenbich had given us a grand. An imposing picture of those evacuation of Omas. We propose, he said, we propose evacuating forty percent of the civil population. Why should we go on feeding so many useless people? We shall but keep back, he went on. Large landowners and the workers we are in need of. At the end of the month, a train will start every day. Volunteers will first go, then the necessitous. The number of volunteers very small. The people repose no trust at all in the Prussians. Do you think the women of the village whisper that they are going to take you to France, to a concentration camp? Rather, you may take my word for it. Some people have thus left Shawnee, and now they are somewhere in the north. Out in the open country, up to the knees in the mud, we laughed at them. But why should the German take charge of us? They would be the bride to feed us, no matter what little they gave us. It was all of no use. Nobody was willing to go, not even those who eagerly wished to escape. The organizer of the convoys were amazed. 
They determined that certain persons should go by foul means, since they would not go by fair means. The commandant of every village was ordered to eject so many persons. The number for mourning was fixed at twenty. There were two volunteers besides ourselves, an elderly lady, Madame Chavon, and her granddaughter both wanted to go back to Paris. Thirteen reluctant immigrants were then to be picked up among the people. Ubenbich chose a random a woman from Bray. Her five small children and her old father, then three orphan boys, and a family including invalid father, a mother, and two little girls. This had two sons, sixteen and eighteen years old. Who would stay behind if the parent went? They raised an outcry. My poor boys, the mother moaned. Am I going to abandon them like that? We beg nothing for the Germans. We want only to be left together. She went to the bureau, threw herself at the feet of Bubenbich, who scouted her demand with disdain and had her kicked out of the doors. The morning we were to start, she pretended to be ill and kept to her bed. The lieutenant dispatched four men who took her out of bed, heedless of her resistance, and made her get into the cart with a blanket as a sole wrapper. We heard the poor woman sob while she put on her stays and petticoats in a jointing cart that took us too long. And the folly of it was that another woman of Cerny wished for nothing better than to go. Since my sister and father are sent away, she said, I should rather go with them. I have no mind to stay here alone with my two babies. It was not to be. Three persons eager to stay were forced to go. Three others, nothing loath to go, were bidden to stay. But had our leader settled the matter? In other villages, it was still worse. A man of a Barenton set his house on fire and hanged himself rather than leave. Some persons were sent away because the Germans coveted their houses for one purpose or another. At Vivier, the wife of Edgerton was compelled to leave her well-furnished house. For the reason that is pleased those gentlemen, so a blind woman and her invalid husband, both aged seventy-five, were banished from Venue. In tears, they left their small house where they had lived happily for many a year. Their garden, whose fruit was sufficient for their scanty need, besides, they had a few fowls and little money. And so they were not in the least a charge upon the German. Of course, they expected everything to be plundered and destroyed, and weak and old as they were, they saw no hope that they would ever come back. We were in tears at one moment, distressed at the thought that we left three of our own people in the lurch. At another, mad. Joy that we should soon be at liberty, or trembling with fear lest we should hear bad news from those whose fate was hidden from us.
about the end of March, after many tears had been shed, embraces and kisses exchanged, after the very dogs had been hung, we found ourselves in front of the bureau, with other departing travellers. We all got into two big carts and sat down on our luggage. The departures were somewhat delayed. We had to wait for the woman who did not want to go away. At ten, the cart set out. Goodbye. We shall see you later in Paris. Bubembit cried. It was the parting kick off the earth. Then you will come as a prisoner, replied Antonier, laying aside all prudence. The officer. Bloke out laughing and turned a deaf ear. With a great deal of joyting, the cars took us away, and we soon lost sight of the pale faces of Madame Valene and her daughters. Two gendarmes on horseback accompanied us. Thus, we were enrolled among the immigrants. We alighted in Lond, and were shown into a huge hall adjoining the station. The little immigrants of Cerny were still screaming. The refractories of women had not left off crying. Pierrot felt uneasy, and hung on to my arm. We dragged our luggage along with a great deal of trouble. The hall we were taken to was already crowded with hundreds of persons. From early morning, the refugees had been arriving in great numbers. Long, rough boards nailed upon four upright pieces of wood serve as a table and benches. Besides, the picture of the emperor, the wall was cheaply decorated with a vast inscription, "God with us," was not absent, nor was God punished England. In letters, "Thee feet high," the shrieking of urchins. Their mothers scolded over stop the general noise. The old people looked scared and did not know what to do. On the rugged table, soldiers put platters of sticky grey soup. A smell of burnt grease floated in the air. We were waiting for our turn to go to a small room where three nurses of the Red Cross were busy feeling, searching, and dressing the immigrant as they pleased. No papers, no letters. At two, everyone had fired off before these searches, and we were ordered to start again. So through the street of Vaux, the pitiful crowd wended its way to the station. About twelve hundred immigrants surrounded by the soldier. From their thresholds, the inhabitants stared at us. Truly, a more miserable herd never was seen. The Germans had chosen to send away the poorest among the poor of our villages: bareheaded women, ragged children, beggarly men, sick people, cripples, idiots. All were laden and overladen with parcels, baskets, and bundles. There were two or three carts to convey the heaviest luggage. But everyone preferred keeping what was dearest to him. We too were overladen. We made what haste we could among the grey crowd. 
We had walked a mile. I could hardly carry my bag any longer. At one moment, it even dropped from my hands. I approached an officer, Steve and Stout, who seemed to be the manager of the caravan. Sir, I besought, please order a moment rest. I can't go any further. No, no, no hold. If you can't carry your things, ask someone else. Someone else. It was easy to say. I looked around me despairingly. The people were all as weary as I. Piero stepped to my arm. Antonia was somewhere in front. Genevieve was spent with fatigue. Near as a soldier seemed touched with pity. I'm sorry. I can't help you. But it's forbidden. At length, I caught sight of a big fellow who carried his fortune in a handkerchief. He was one-eyed, one-armed, but he was willing to take charge of my bag. I was then able to help Genevieve with hers. We were safe. We stopped every other minute, put down our common load, and taking up again, ran forward to fall into place. Where were we going to? We went on tramping through the mud, with the noise of a flock of sheep, and to crown all, there came on a heavy rain, which the poor crying children received on their dirty little noses. We had left the suburbs, and the road now passed through the open country. At about three miles from the station, we perceived an immense train of third-class carriages. There was waiting for us. He was carried by storm. Each one said to himself, "We were but six persons in one carriage. We and two ladies of Moni, the grandmother, and the granddaughter. We exchanged congratulations. We had been told that the journey might be difficult. One of the hardest stages was passed. We sat down to recover our breath." Stretch our steep limbs, and then look around us. The carriage we were in had been used to convey troops. They were bedecked with inscriptions in pencil. Some, without much expense of thought, merely wished that God should punish England. Other clamour for the death of those pigs of a Frenchman, or stated that French blood. Is good. Piero conscientiously rubbed out with his handkerchief as much as he could. After many manoeuvres, marches, and countermarches, the train decided to start. It was about four o'clock. Oh, memorable hour! We saw the gate of our prison open a little. Was it possible that we were going away? Was it true? Could we say in our turn, within four days, Paris? We were made with joy. We kissed one another. Then we thought it's wise to put our thing in order. This carriage would doubtless serve us as a shelter as far as the Swiss frontier, perhaps for two or three days. The first thing then was to make ourselves comfortable. Our feet were cold. Suppose we put on our slippers. The sooner said than done.
when our first join has somewhat cooled down and we were properly installed, we watched the landscape. The train went slowly through a dull country. The clouds seemed to crawl along the ground and the mist moistened the paint of the windows. We had hardly gone an hour when the train stopped and left half of its carriages in the station. Then we resumed our journey and soon made a second halt. We could not read the name of the station where we were at. We did not know even what line we were on. The engine was reserved, then stopped some time after we allowed to whistle. Soldier went along carriages and threw the doors open. Go down, or bags and luggage. Sudden change in great hate we put on our shoes, tie our shawls and clocks together, gathered our bags and jump out on the line. Many cries and calls were heard. At last, the train emptied itself. There was a whistle, and of it moved. There we were, about six hundred of us standing on a steep bank, and wondering what was going to happen next. No station was to be seen. The country seemed deserted. Puget land on the left, hill stripped by the winter on the right. The immigrant, uneasy in their minds, bustled about. Women fell a weeping, relations sought one another. An old man bent with aid, and walking awry like a crab, moved to and fro. My wife, I have lost my wife. Thus he moaned to himself, looking up for the weak arm that would hold up his greater debility. The babies cry with cold. A sharp wind pierced us to the marrow. The rain cut our faces, and our heart thrilled with fear. While the night fell on, the anxiety of a miserable herd moving in the fall. End of chapter 10